0: I just want to tell you what 20 years ago, on the equivalent Sunday morning, I would probably have been recovering from a night dancing to the Spice Girls. <laughs> Some of you don't even remember the Spice Girls; you're that young. But they were a phenomenon, and um, they were sort of appeared to be taking over the world at that stage. To be honest, and that wasn't a very happy world to live in. Anyway. Um, After the Spice Girls went their separate ways, Jerry Halliwell, who was Ginger Spice there in the blue dress, she announced that she was going to be a UN ambassador. Here she is. There she is, working for the UN. Now, when I heard that, I will be honest with you, I felt a little bit alarmed. I was like, is this how bad it's got? that everybody is so clueless what to do about the fallout of the Iraq war and Syria and stuff like that. They've thought that it would be a good idea to send Jerry Halliwell in and sing wannabe sort of badly. Um, What is going on with this? But then I discovered this phrase, I'm a UN ambassador. When you look into the meaning of that phrase when it came to her, she was what's called a UN goodwill ambassador, which is nothing like being Ban Ki-moon and actually trying to get armies to stop fighting. It's like you go into places and sing songs and try and create, you know, a happy feeling wherever you go. And for some people, Jerry Halliwell can do that, apparently. It's a dangerous half-truth. It's true, Jerry Halliwell is a UN ambassador, but by itself, it's misleading. Now, today we're going to talk about another phrase that's like that, a dangerous half-truth. And it's here, it's going to come up on the screen. Lots of people would say this. There is a God. But let's be honest, that could mean anything. That stretches right from, I believe there's a specific creator, there is only him in heaven, and you don't follow him. If you don't follow him, I will kill you. Right from there, all the way across to... Well, there's a divine force in everybody, and it's a bit like Star Wars, and you connect into it by meeting a little green alien or whatever it is. There is a God. It's very vague. But it doesn't mean there's no truth behind it. It doesn't mean because it's a vague phrase that we all just get to pitch into the debate about what you think God is like, what I think God is like. No, we need to work out the truth that that phrase is pointing to. You know, we don't get to say, oh, Jerry Halliwell's a UN ambassador. Let's put her on a plane to Syria. We don't get to do that. We have to say, what is the truth of that phrase? She's a goodwill ambassador. And it's the same with there is a God. What's the truth that's behind it? Now, from the earliest days of the Christian church, about 2,000 years ago, uh, Christianity sort of launched into this world where there were lots of competing claims about what God there was. That was true of the world Christianity appeared in. Most people said in those days, there's at least one God, but lots of people said, well, it's very confusing because everybody thinks different things. And from the earliest days, the Christian church said, well, it's a bit like a jigsaw. You've got to fit the pieces together, but there's one central piece which you cannot move, and you get that in place, and you work from there to find out what God is like. And that central piece of the jigsaw that doesn't move is that the man, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God, actually died and actually came back from the dead. That is the central piece of the jigsaw. He died and came back to life. We work from there. Now, maybe you are sitting there thinking this is totally crazy that people here would believe that. Well, we're going to see in our reading today, which is from those earliest days of the church, that you're not alone. The earliest listeners heard this claim that Jesus came back from the dead, and some of them sneered. That's the word that the passage will use. But here's the, the issue. The fact that Jesus came back from the dead means it's time to stop being vague. To stop saying, oh, yeah, 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 there's a God. But we start with Jesus and work from there. And we'll discover if we start from him, we can be sure about God and what he wants from us. So we're going to hear read now this speech of one of the earliest Christians introducing Christianity to some very clever people.
1: While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Ereopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear more again on this subject. At that Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, Also a woman called Damaris, and a number of others.
0: Thanks, Jules. Excellent dealing with the Greek names there. So here we have Paul, one of the earliest Christians, one of the uh, talking to people who could sign up to the dangerous half-truth. Did you notice that? Verse 23, they had an altar where they said to the unknown God. So they were saying, yep, there is a God, but we can only guess what he's like. So we'll set up an altar and we'll say, yeah, there's a God, but we're not really sure what he's like. And Paul is saying, listen, because Jesus has come back from the dead, it can't work that way anymore. Now, maybe you're here today and you're one of those people, those people, we all know them You're just like, oh, well, it's nice to be at church. But this God talk has nothing to do with me because everything, as far as I'm concerned, is scientifically proven. It's about hard facts and none of this wishy-washy faith stuff. Well, the Epicureans who get mentioned in this passage, that was also true of them. They didn't believe of anything that wasn't material, but Paul still addressed this talk to them because they couldn't deny That they lived in a world where most people both did believe something and really wanted to believe in something, confused as they are about what he's like. And we too live in a culture that's just like that. I wonder if you remember when there were those terrible terror attacks in Paris in 2015, this sort of meme went round the world pray for Paris lots of people putting that as their Facebook status or a hashtag who don't pray at any other time you know not religious people everybody was passing this on and there were some people I don't know whether you remember who were a little bit sort of snarky about it and said what's the point of praying for Paris this was all religion's fault in the first place and maybe you think that but you can't deny that it's there this longing for there to be a God who will help us. In our culture, like all cultures, there is an urge to believe something, an altar to the unknown God. But beyond thinking that there is probably a God, there's just confusion. If you'd asked someone who put that up in their Facebook feed, Pray for Paris, if you'd said to most people, who are you praying to? They would have said, oh, I'm I'm not really sure, or, or maybe just a lot of conflicting answers. It's strange, isn't it, that in Athens, as today, there is confusion amongst intelligent people who wouldn't put up with confusion in any er- other area of life, but ready to leave this sort of vague and undefined. And Paul says, no, 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 let's not do it. If you're clever and you spend your life working things out and discussing ideas, Let's discuss this one too. Let's work it out. I hope some of you will be willing to do that as well. So Paul, this early Christian, is pointing out to these people, it's not satisfactory to say there's nothing there, because basically no one really believes that. Neither is it satisfactory just to accept a whole lot of vague and contradictory things about God, just to say, yeah, yeah, there's something, but we just don't know what it is. Paul says, listen, now that Jesus Christ actually died and Jesus Christ actually came back to life and given what he showed us about God, there's three things you need to stop thinking. I wonder, did you spot them in his speech? The first one is this, creators don't need houses. It's strange, isn't it, that when we feel our need of God, this strange figure beyond us who dogs us at every step, we tend to end up doing something religious. I put a picture there of uh, this church saying, we are the house of God church. A picture of Cathedral, which has a sign at the door saying, welcome to the house of God. Or if you're not so much into established religion, maybe you're more of a druid, and you'd prefer to go to Stonehenge and meet, meet with God there. We have this sense that if God did make me, and I need his help, and I ask for it sometimes. You know, I pray for Paris. Then I should maybe go to church now and again, or visit a cathedral and put some money in the box, or go and try and connect with him at Stonehenge. Tributes, supposedly to God, are scattered across the skylines of every city in the world. Some of them even labelled Houses of God. It's that same old religious image impulse. If God's there, we should do something for him. And Paul is saying, listen, okay, understand the impulse, but isn't that a bit inconsistent? If God is capable of answering our prayers for Paris, for what reason would he need us to build him a house to live in? For what reason would he be sitting in heaven crying into his tea? Wishing, just wishing that you would go to your church building. Maybe at Christmas, or maybe when you've asked for help for the rest of the year. This is the strange sort of inconsistency people spiral into when they just believe the dangerous half truth. But Paul's point is listen, if there's a real God, he doesn't need anything from you. Why would he? Because life itself is made by him. And is his gift to us. He's not standing around waiting for you to do something useful for him. See, the real truth is this. God doesn't need anything. The God we imagine would need something. Wouldn't he be a big version of us? Easily made lonely. Sitting in the corner of the universe waiting for someone to remember his birthday. Buy him a cake, make him a fuss, go to church. But the real God does not need him, need us to build him a house. He doesn't want our religious observance in order for him to feel better. No, 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 it's the other way around. Life itself is his gift to us. How do we know that's true? Because he became a person, and that person came back from the dead. I think a lot of people, though they believe in the half-truth, there is a God, or put off organized religion precisely because of all of this nonsense. When I introduce you to God today through Jesus, I just want to be clear, I am not introducing you to the needy man in the sky who needs you to serve him by going to old buildings where he lives to see people performing arcane rituals in dresses. I'm sorry that so many Christians have sort of got in the way by dressing it all up in that way. Welcome to the house of God. Giving the impression that the religious life is some sort of sound of music type existence, where you walk up and down corridors and sing in and plain and chant all day long. The real God made the real world. He does not need you to do any religious thing for him. That's what we imagine when we begin with the dangerous half-truth that there is a God. But by itself, that leads to confusion. In fact, it's quite an unattractive confusion, isn't it? Who wants a life filled with old-fashioned religiosity? Not me. Probably not you. And that's good. Because that's not what's on offer. If the God Jesus shows us is there, he doesn't need that. And if the God Jesus shows us is real, he made us. We don't make fuss of him. And is the God that Jesus shows us is real? Well, Paul says yes, because he came back from the dead. Here's the second thing. Paul says you need to stop believing. Or you need to start believing this. Sorry, double negative. You need to start believing that forces don't have children. Uh, I don't know whether you recognize this. Esmeralda from the Hunchback of Notre Dame Disney film, great movie underrated Disney film in my view, better than Frozen which I've seen many times and Esmeralda goes into the cathedral in this film and she says to God I don't know if you can hear me or if you're even there but I thought we all were children of God reflects very much what people think if God is there the sort of powerful, magical, force-type God, I'm sure I would be his child. People are writing songs about that feeling for Disney films. It's a common theme in culture. Paul quotes it in verse 28, saying that even in ancient Greece, someone who believed that God was just a force had written a poem saying, but if he's a force, we're still all his children. Well, that's an interesting and comforting idea, sort of, Except if God is, as everyone seems to imagine, an impersonal force, hard to reach, mystical, impossible to understand, like magic or gravity or electricity, you can't be a child of that. Electricity has not given birth to any children. Gravity does not love anybody. Forces don't have children, that's what Paul's saying here. The category of children doesn't come into play unless we're talking about a parent. And Paul says the idea that we're God's children, that we're made to relate to him, that idea is right. We are made to do that. But that means we need to ditch the other idea that doesn't go with that, that God is just some sort of electrical force impersonal out there. Impersonal forces don't have relationships. So you're right to sense you're supposed to be God's child, but that means you've got to rely on this vague mystical idea of God. The real God does long for us to be his children. That's why God used his creative power at all. So we would relate to him. Paul says he's not far from us. He's not hiding. But perhaps you don't find him because you're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking for electricity. You're looking for the force from Star Wars instead of God. The father. We think if God's there, he must want some religious observance, a miserable, boring ritual to make him feel appreciated. In fact, God is in himself a relationship of passionate, giving, personal love. And he has made us so that we can know him. So we can join into that relationship. In fact, it's not very far away from any of us. Anybody can join in that relationship today. It's not hard to know God at all. Oh, it is if you just begin with the only the dangerous half-truth that there is a God. That will get you nowhere. But if you begin with this sense that we are supposed to be God's children, well, it means a whole lot of wrong ideas of God are ruled out. No magnetic, impersonal forces have children. Great, you know, It would not be a point of celebration that I was God's child if God was like gravity. There's nothing to celebrate there. But say there's a perfect father in heaven who wants to adopt us into his family of self-giving love. Well, that's better news, isn't it? Who wants to be the child of an impersonal force? Not me. I guess not you. But to think there is a God who by his nature loves us, who has made us, not to serve some life-reducing religious purpose, but so that we could reach out to him and find him. And that sense that we're made to be his children is more amazingly true than we could possibly imagine. The half-truth, there is a God, is misleading. Here's the real truth. God is eternally a father. And how do we know that? Because the one who was always his son, his child, became a person, Jesus Christ. And that person came back from the dead. Here's the third thing got to stop start believing oh yes i wanted to tell you this story didn't make it into my notes but it's a great story Um, this week i was standing exactly there where that picture shows on this pavement and someone came up to me and said we're really sorry we're really lost we're looking for the anglican cathedral (laughs) and i was like there's a hidden camera here somewhere isn't there so I sort of played along a bit and said, oh, you're looking for the Anglican Cathedral. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, hope you have a nice day. And they were like, no, really, we're looking for the Anglican Cathedral. And I was like, maybe they're confused. So I said, is it the Catholic Cathedral you want? That's at the other end of this road. And they said, no, 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 we're looking for this one. Got out a map with a picture of the Anglican Cathedral on it. And I said, oh, I, I, it, it's just here. And they turned around and looked and were like, Oh. That's the Anglican cathedral. (laughs) Now, Paul is saying, since Jesus has risen from the dead, it is like that with God. It's not that God is far away. It's not that God is hard to recognize. He is right there with us, and he has shown it by raising Jesus from the dead. Stop wandering around, asking where he is. Third thing that we're going to see, God isn't subjective Verse 29, here's the thing Paul says, if God is real and is like this, we have got to stop imagining for ourselves what he's like. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. If God is real and is there and Jesus has come back from the dead, you cannot think he is like the statues and paintings and buildings that people make to represent him. Because how could those be accurate if he's the one who made us? If he made us, we don't get to make him. He's really going for the jugular here, Paul, isn't he? Because you remember at the start of the story, there are loads and loads of statues apparently of God in this city. So he's not, you know playing a a little game here. He says all of this business of people from different cultures expressing their thoughts about God in different ways through statues of Vishnu and Native American totem poles or stained glass windows. Paul's saying it's not that they've all got a little bit of insight. It's that they're all wrong. It's pretty hard going, isn't it? We can't design or imagine what God is like Because we didn't make him, he made us. So those things are very wonderful uh, insights into the diversity of human cultures, but they don't tell us anything at all about God. How could they? Because God invented people. People didn't invent God. There's no cultural snobbery here, by the way. Maybe you think, oh, yes, those foolish people in other parts of the world who make statues of God. People in the West tend to be less into making statues of metal Our statues are mental. That is, we say, I will believe in God as long as he agrees with my pre-decided view of this. What I think about sexuality lets me do what I want with my life. Yes, yes, then I'll believe in him. But do you realize you can't actually do that with people who are real? Say you met me this morning, and I said, hi, I'm Morris, and you said, I will believe you're real if you're called Fred. I just can't change the fact that's not my name. The problem with you believing in me because you won't believe in my actual name, that problem resides with you. If God is a fact, then we don't get to invent him. Personally, uh, I've met people, uh, as I engage people who aren't Christians, who come up with this type of thing all the time. I believe that God is a sort of force in the world, but I believe we're all God's children. And also I believe God really loves all the things I love and hates all the things that I hate. What a coincidence. You don't get to say to your parents uh, when you're 18, okay, I'll turn around to them and say, you can be responsible for creating me as long as you have ginger hair. Then you can be my parent. I will believe you are my parent if you have ginger hair. No, I'm afraid your parents' biological parts created you. You don't get to choose that. If God made us, we didn't make him. We don't get to design him. It is just, as Paul says, and again, he doesn't hold back, in verse 30, ignorance. The thing is, I guess that it's fine to hold a whole lot of mess of contradictory beliefs if they're the only ones you've got. It's all very well Paul coming in and chucking grenades at the beliefs the Athenians have. But it's going to make a difference. He needs to have something better. And Paul says he does. And because of that, God says, change your mind. You see, if all we have been left with was our impressions of God we've gained from the world to discuss and swap, well, there would be every reason to point to God and say, you can't expect us to know you accurately because we've never met you. We have as much chance of knowing you as we have of knowing the architect of this building from the way it's designed, and that's not a very good chance. That's not all we have. Paul says... God came in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. Could he have made it any easier to understand what he's like? He came in the form of a person. He lowered himself to be like us so that we could see perfectly what he loves and cares about. We can see in Jesus Christ that God made everything, that he has a personality, that He invented us. We didn't invent him. Jesus, God as a person, expresses that clearly, compellingly, beautifully. What's more, he made it clear what God thinks is important. And Paul says in verse 31, one day he, that man who is God, will judge the world with justice. Now, this is where lots of people get a bit turned off. don't like this idea of anybody judging anybody else. In our culture, being judgmental is the sin that offends everyone. And the God that I imagine wouldn't be judgmental. But we've already established. God doesn't stop existing because you imagine him to be a particular way. And all Paul is saying here is that someday people will be accountable to God for the way they have lived. God will pronounce a verdict on what they have done. And the standard that God will measure us against will be the one he revealed very clearly to us in the person of Jesus Christ. All sorts of people think if God, the magnetic magic force, does meet them, he will have to welcome them in with his large magnetic gravitational electricity arms. I don't know how this works. Uh, Because they are, after all, his offspring somehow produced with the personality from the mysterious force. And he won't pronounce any moral verdict on them because he doesn't do that. Although we do want him to answer our misdirected prayers morally. It's very confusing, but it will be okay. That mess of inconsistent beliefs have had their day, Paul says. God has made his standard very clear by coming and living out in the person of Jesus. And one day he will hold us to account to that standard. What's more, to prove that this is the right standard, to prove that this is the person we should trust to show us what God is like, he did what only God could do. He died and came back to life. Listen, God doing that means this morning, Jesus is the one you need to deal with. Stop guessing, leading yourself into this maze of ever more foolish contradictions. The character of God that he wants to know us, the standard for our lives, justice demonstrated by Jesus, and the objective reality of God have been revealed and guaranteed because Jesus, the man, died and came back to life. You know, some people hear that claim of Christians, that Jesus actually came back to life, and you'll see in verse 32, they sneer. You can't honestly believe that. People don't come back from the dead. Sometimes people who aren't Christians do actually say that to you. They say, people can't come back from the dead, as if what we believe as Christians is that everybody, you know, just comes back from the dead now and again. It's like an everyday occurrence. Yes, I am aware people generally don't come back from the dead. That is the point. The Epicureans sneered. It it was a miraculous event. We we can't prove it scientifically if that's what you're looking for because it only happened once. That's the point. Be foolish to sneer for that reason. You'll see in the passage there were some who said they wanted to consider this and some who believed Paul's message even amongst these very clever discussers of ideas. And people from all backgrounds and all intellects have been coming to believe in this since for 2,000 years because Jesus came back from the dead. Well, I've gone on long enough. Let me finish just by making clear what the point is. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, the real God commands you to abandon your self-contradictory mess of ideas about God based on guesswork and know the truth as he has shown it in Jesus. No excuses for ignorance now. If you say, I just don't feel totally sure Jesus did come back from the dead, that's absolutely fine, but at the very least you better look into it. You... If you become a Christian today, it's not that you're sort of bypassing your intellect for some sort of leap in the dark. What you have come to believe is God's clear revelation, which makes much more sense than any of the other ideas people are putting forward. There is one God you need to be sorted with. Listen, Jesus has proved that God will one day hold everyone to God's standard of justice by coming back from the dead. Saying there is a God will not cut it. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the God we need to deal with. Let's pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your help in sorting out our wrong ideas to fit them in with what Jesus shows us is true. We thank you for that one central piece of the jigsaw that we can work out from that Jesus died and came back to life. We thank you that you did that in history so we can know it. We thank you how clearly that shows us Just how brilliant you are. Not the God of our imagination, but so much more. And so we pray you would help us repent of any ignorance, any wrong ideas, and trust you, the real God. Let's take a few moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard.
2: So just raise your hand if you have anything, a question or a comment you'd like to make and Morris will try and answer. Yes, cats. So people um, make statues and there are lots of different religions out there. Why does a God who is a personal uh, and loving God um, allow these different uh, people to make such statues and there to be different religions?
0: It's a really great question and in a sense that's the type of question that we have to approach with some humility um, where we're sort of saying, why would God do this? We have to be careful to not think we get to say, God, you shouldn't have done this to God. In saying that, I think there's a couple of answers to that. Um, It is interesting, isn't it, that he says in the passage, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, which I I think there's some acknowledgement there that up to Jesus there was some justification, um, especially considering that up to Jesus, God's people themselves had done such a terrible job of showing the world what he was like. So that's the first thing to say, um, that there is that hint in the passage. Today, I think, why doesn't God just now sort of say, everybody bond to me, Jesus, you know, it's sort of like I am the dictator, you bow to me now. It sort of gets to the heart of what God is interested in from us. So I quite agree with you, God could do what he, you suggested, which is just force everybody to bow down to him. But it does seem to what we learn about God through Jesus that what God is interested in is us choosing to relate to him. We all know the difference, don't we, between um, a forced marriage and a chosen marriage Um, Some people might have experience of either both of those things, actually, in our congregation. And there's something wrong with the forced marriage. It doesn't respect the personhood of somebody involved. And I think there's something like that going on in God, allowing people still to reach. In saying that, I think one of the reasons that Christians are so committed to taking this message beyond the people who already know it is because we think the time for ignorance is past. So... Hopefully we're not hypocritical in that. Great question. I could talk about it all day. So I'll stop and see if there's any others.
2: So not everyone um, has had a good family experience with their parents. and So how do we meet that with um, a loving father that's shown in Jesus?
0: Yeah. So for some people, the idea that you're God's child is quite a terrifying idea because being someone else's child has been a really awful experience. Uh, I'm quite sure that's true. Sorry, I didn't have time to address it because I'm sure that has been the experience of of lots of people um, I think the first thing I would say is it's true actually for everyone even the people with the best parents to not have parents as good as God as a father and so we'll all be looking past the failures of our parents to see them as only a little shadow of the real fatherhood of God so we all have that experience I find that quite a sort of sobering thought as a parent um, but it's it's true to some extent for everybody I realise there are some people in much more extreme situations where they just haven't had a good fatherhood at all. And the thing that I'd want to say again is the relationship you need to look at between, to discover what it's like for God to be a father is Jesus' relationship with his father rather than your relationship with your father or mother. And that, it seems to me, is why God the Son came into the world, uh, not God the Father, who knows but uh, one of the reasons is so we could understand what it is like to be God's child by observing him and so I think again what I'd want to say is that's that's the central piece of the jigsaw that's the place to start and I think what lots of people have found over the years who've got incredibly dysfunctional relationships with their parents or maybe they never knew their parents maybe their parents died when they were young or something like that is that knowing there's a father like that can actually bring some measure of healing to that situation but I think, I think that's why it's the son who comes into the world because it's being God's children we have to learn to be. It's a great question, thank you. Any others? Good ones today. Yes, yeah,
2: so great question. I hope I give this justice. Um, God, um, in, in what we've read in Acts, Paul says that um, God has revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus and Yet 2,000 years later, it doesn't necessarily feel like um, we know him or like it's, we can be close to him or like he reveals himself very clearly to us. So how do we reconcile those two things together?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Lewis. And um, 2,000 years is a long time away, so none of us have lived to see both now and then, and that's right to acknowledge that. I think the point Paul is making here is, to these people, you know God's near, so he quotes their own poets saying, for in him we live and move and have our being. And what he's saying is, everybody who thinks there is a God thinks he's somehow near us. So there's, there's a whole separate issue of people who don't think there's God at all, which is slightly different. But it's interesting that pray for Paris thing is an amazing example, isn't it? It's like, just say you think there is a God who made the world, why would he be interested in some people dying in Paris? But we have this sense that if he's there, he is. So I think that's the point he's making. It's not Jesus' death makes it close to us, but rather that sense you have that God must be close to us is is shown to be true because he became a person and died and came back to life. Um, and I think that is true for people who do believe there is something. When you chat to them, it's nearly you know very few people believe there's something, but it's so far and distant away and has nothing whatsoever to do with what we are doing here. And so, what Paul using that as a way in and say, okay, well, if he's close,
1: what is he like? So, yeah, great question. We should probably stop, shouldn't we?
2: Yeah. Great.